0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. As always, make sure to subscribe to get new episodes to your chosen feed every Thursday. Today, we're painting a picture of one of the greatest portrait artists of the 1700s, Sir Joshua Reynolds, as we mark 300 years since his birth. Joining us to put the requisite colour and detail into Reynolds' life and work are two English Heritage curators of collections and interiors, Louise Cooling and Peter Moore. Well, firstly, which English Heritage properties are you both based at? So, Louise, where are you at normally?
1: I am at Kenwood in northwest London.
0: And I can be found
2: at Audley End in Essex or at Rest Park in. Bedfordshire but talking to you from Audley End today.
0: What's it like as well to be surrounded by the work of Sir Joshua Reynolds every day as as part of your job Louise first of all?
1: Well it's very special it's very special to be surrounded by wonderful artworks of course and Reynolds is is a particularly fascinating painter his work is is so varied and his portraiture particularly is very theatrical. And so it's it's fascinating to be surrounded by his work.
2: Yeah, and likewise, well, I'm surrounded by all kinds of paintings from the early 16th century to the late 19th century. But I do have a kind of particular long standing interest in 18th century British art. So Reynolds is absolutely perfect for that. So to work very closely with paintings by him is really a great treat.
0: Well, hopefully if people have got access to the internet, they are looking at uh, pictures by Sir Joshua Reynolds right now. But um, we'll try and describe some of his work as we go through the podcast. But let's find out a bit more about Reynolds the man. Who was he and what is he known for, Louise?
1: Reynolds was really one of the most important artists in the history of British art He was the most famous and most fashionable portrait painter of the second half of the 18th century. He painted everyone who was anyone from aristocrats, politicians, intellectuals, to actors, musicians, and even courtesans. His portraiture was very innovative. He really transformed what a portrait could be by combining a good likeness of his sitters with imaginative elements. He took inspiration from the work of 16th and 17th century artists, what we call the old masters, and he drew on history, literature, mythology to create these portraits that are filled with action and a lot of theatricality. His aim really was to elevate portraiture from what he called mere face painting to a higher form of art, something that he referred to as the great style or the grand manner. And that's really what he's most famous for today. But he was also not only a painter, but an art theorist and the first president of the Royal Academy of Arts. And he used that position to raise the status of arts in Britain. And the status of artists, really, from a sort of tradesman's craft to a much more admired and scholarly profession. And he set out a very comprehensive and influential theory of art. So he effectively dominated artistic life in Britain for almost 50 years in the second half of the 18th century.
0: And as we've said in the introduction, 2023 is a special year for Sir Joshua Reynolds, isn't it?
1: Absolutely it is. Reynolds was born on the 16th of July 1723. So 2023 marks his tercentenary year, his 300th birthday.
0: If you had to pick out Reynolds's most well-known works that people might like to have a look at while we're talking about it, what works would they be?
1: Oh, there are so many. He was a really prolific painter. He could complete as many as 100 paintings in a year at the height of his career. So there are about 2,000 known paintings today. I think probably the painting that's most famous in the mo- at the moment, certainly in the public consciousness, is his astonishing portrait of Omai, oh which has just been acquired by the National Portrait Gallery and the Getty in Los Angeles and has just recently gone on display at the newly opened National Portrait Gallery. So certainly one of his most famous and interesting works and certainly in the public consciousness at the moment, I imagine.
0: Okay, so I can see through a quick search on the internet, a character standing full length. It's a you know head to toe image wearing ochre coloured clothing and with a turban-style headscarf, this gentleman. So this person is obviously not from the UK.
1: No, that's right. So Omai was a new resident to the UK. He was from the Pacific Islands. He had arrived in Europe in 1768. The clothing that he's wearing is not really a Pacific Islander's dress. It's very much a sort of imagined outfit outfit that Reynolds gives him that evokes his sort of exoticism, but it is a truly astonishing painting.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting one, very dynamic and he's sort of looking off into the distance to one side. And there appears to be a landscape in the background as well with some clouds and uh, some countryside. Yeah, it's a very sort of staged, idealistic kind of view, isn't it, of a person in a grand presentation.
1: Very much so. It, it's, there's some palm trees in the background, suggesting that sort of exotic landscape. Amai um, was originally from Tahiti, so suggesting perhaps a sort of Tahitian landscape, and a very grand portrait. Certainly, very much in the that grand manner style that we were talking about a second ago, that Reynolds was so famous for. for giving his portraiture something beyond simply a likeness of his sitters, but this very sort of timeless quality.
0: You mentioned that there's about 2,000 Reynolds works that people could potentially lay their eyes on. So do they vary in style across his lifetime?
1: Yes, certainly his style developed across his lifetime. Um, His very early works, when he's just starting out prior to travelling to Italy to go on the grand tour and study the works of the Italian old masters, his work is, is really much more conventional, I suppose, in the style in which he'd been taught by his master, Thomas Hudson, who was a leading portraitist in the first half of the 18th century And so Reynolds' early works are are in a much more conventional style, really uh, head and shoulders or waist-length portraits. And he isn't trying to do too much in terms of grandeur or theatricality or storytelling. He's just depicting a likeness. But when he returns from his grand tour, he's been inspired by what he's seen in Italy and on his way back through Paris And he really takes all the things that he's seen, all the sketches and drawings that he's made of the works of the Italian old masters and of classical Roman sculpture. And he uses that to inspire a really different type of portraiture. And that really develops over the course of his career for the next 50 years. He never really goes back to those slightly more reserved head and shoulders portraits in in the same way his portraiture becomes increasingly dramatic and theatrical he uses the work of the old masters and of the classical world which he considers the highest form of art to really ennoble his painting his portraits and to give a kind of intellectual exclusivity to his sitters and to the viewers who have to sort of interpret and extrapolate and understand the inspiration that he's using.
0: Yes. And inspiration, I think, is quite an important word, isn't it? Because it's he's being inspired by other, other styles throughout, isn't he? And it's sort of evocations of prior work, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly the 16th and 17th century Italian old masters, but he's also a great admirer of Rembrandt, the celebrated 17th century Dutch painter and He's continually influenced by Rembrandt throughout his career. But he also is very conscious of the work of his French contemporaries, people like François Boucher, the Rococo painter. And he is, is very aware as, a, as an artist of what's going before him, but also what's going on in the world around him. And he, he sort of borrows from all sorts of different sources, from literature and from mythology and then uses those sources to put a a, a new slant on his own portraits.
0: So he's a bit like a musician in modern day pop, I suppose, being influenced by previous musicians from maybe a decade before or even contemporary ones.
1: Yes, that's that's a really good way to think of him. He really is cherry picking from all sorts of different sources, but always never copying, really taking inspiration and then doing something new with it
0: so it's almost like his own style but an an homage as well which mm. is really interesting <laughs> I quite like the fact that um, you mentioned Rembrandt there because obviously on the podcast before we've been to Kenwood and we've done an episode where we're talking about the Rembrandt self-portrait mm, yes. and if you go to the, the Encyclopedia Britannica website Sir Joshua Reynolds's self-portrait is, is there as the main image and uh, there's sort of a similarity between those two paintings in a way isn't there?
1: Absolutely. And Reynolds had actually visited the Netherlands and he had seen the late Rembrandt self-portrait that is now at Kenwood. He writes about it in his pocketbook, uh, a sort of journal that he kept. He says that it it appears in a very unfinished state, but it's nonetheless an extraordinary portrait. And I think it's very easy to see that Reynolds is taking inspiration from that particular self-portrait but also lots of other Rembrandt self-portraits in fashioning his own image of himself.
0: Mm. be interesting to see what listeners think of what we're talking about. So if you want to have a listen to that um, Rembrandt at Kenwood episode, it's uh, episode 29 and you might be able to see some similarities between the way the two artists have depicted themselves. Moving on to Reynolds's works, at English Heritage sites then. So does English Heritage have many examples of Reynolds paintings, Louise?
1: Yes, we are very lucky at English Heritage to be the custodians of quite a significant number of paintings by Reynolds. I'm particularly lucky because 17 of those are in the collection here at Kenwood.
0: 17? I must have missed those when I went to Kenwood those two times.
1: (laughs) They're scattered around the house. They're not presented en masse. So you'd be forgiven for not noticing them amongst all of the other 18th century treasures we have at Kenwood. But yes, we have 17, which is a very significant number.
0: Absolutely. Because of course, we've got Gainsborough, isn't it? Thomas Gainsborough, Vermeer, Rembrandt, of course, loads of other really
1: big names. Really big names. Yeah.
0: How did English Heritage then acquire these Reynolds works?
1: Well, Kenwood's connection with Reynolds actually dates back to the artist's lifetime. Um, in 1785, Kenwood's then owner, Lord Chief Justice William Murray, 1st Earl of Mansfield, commissioned his portrait from Reynolds. Sadly, the original version of that painting is no longer in the collection at Kenwood. But in 1927, Kenwood's new owner, Edward Cecil Guinness, 1st Earl of Iver, Gave an exceptional collection of works by Reynolds as part of his bequest to the nation, which of course included the Vermeer and the Rembrandt. But this incredible group of Reynolds. Reynolds was undoubtedly Lord Ivor's favourite artist. He began collecting paintings by Reynolds in about 1887, and in just five years he bought 36 works by Reynolds, 17 of which are now at Kenwood. So really have Lord Ivor to thank for that incredibly rich collection.
0: Do you have any favourite pieces as you sort of (laughs) do your job and walk around the property?
1: Wow, that's a really unfair question to ask a curator. (laughs) Um, There are so many to choose from, but I think most days I'd probably have to pick Kitty Fisher as Cleopatra Dissolving the Pearl, which is a relatively early work by Reynolds, certainly in, in the context of the collection at Kenwood. It shows Kitty Fisher, who was a very celebrated courtesan and one of the first celebrities, really. She was famous just for being famous. She used her wit, her charm, and her beauty to rise to fame through a series of high-profile liaisons with wealthy and powerful men. She was renowned for her displays of very flamboyant extravagance. She once According to Casanova, ate a £100 banknote on a slice of buttered bread. Reynolds painted her four times and in this portrait he depicts her as Cleopatra in a scene recalling a lavish banquet held in honour of Mark Antony when the Egyptian queen dissolves a giant pearl in vinegar and drinks it. So a very sort of similar display of flamboyant extravagance. Um, I was going to say. Yeah, very, very (laughs) much so. One
0: doesn't chuck away pearls normally, do
1: No, no, absolutely not. But painting Kitty brought Reynolds a lot of publicity because she was so famous and Reynolds really used her fame to enhance his own reputation. But it, it was also an opportunity for him to push the boundaries of female portraiture in ways that would have been too risque for more conventional women, utilising Kitty's scandalous reputation to push the boundaries of what he can do. It's really a portrait that is an early example of sort of ambitious experiment in a new type of female portraiture where Reynolds gives his sitters the roles, the trappings, and the associations of recognizable characters from history, myth, literature. And I think that's what makes it such a wonderful painting. One of the reasons I love it so much. Kitty is such a character, and it's such a brilliant collaboration between sitter and artist.
0: Yes there's more to it than meets the eye isn't there you have to know the story behind the brushstrokes and the thinking behind it as you've described it it's interesting that how you have described it because i think even these days on the internet you can upload a picture of yourself and someone will create a picture of you in a style which may be you know the 1800s 1700s whatever yeah. Um, so it's almost like that. So what's happening today in the art market is not a new thing, really.
1: No, gosh, no, <laughs> I don't think there's anything new in, in art under the sun, really. Everything Somebody's always had a go. It's just a, a bit like Reynolds himself, taking inspiration from what came before and putting a new slant on it with new technology and new techniques.
0: We've heard about some of the uh, Reynolds' female portraits, as you've just described. Um, He presumably painted men as well. And are there particularly noteworthy examples of this, Peter?
2: Yes, there certainly are. And while I think it's fair to say that Reynolds didn't paint as many um, men as he did women, male subjects do occupy a really important place in his work. So he painted male royalty, politicians, aristocrats, leading thinkers and intellectuals of Georgian Britain, all these kind of categories that Louise has already alluded to. But one of the most noteworthy categories of male portraiture, and one I think that arguably launched his career, was naval and military subjects. So Britain was engaged in a fairly steady stream of conflicts throughout the 18th century in Europe and also across the globe. And this undoubtedly fueled the demand for a kind of heroic male portraiture and especially in Reynolds' early career, when he was operating between London and Plymouth Dock in his native Devon, he found a lot of business with elite members of the British Navy. And while he was creating the portraits for these men, he had one eye on the what you could describe as the pre-existing formal conventions of naval portraiture, so the traditional ways in which clients might expect themselves to be presented, the kinds of poses and dress and the overall look and feel of an image. But he was also balancing this with his strong desire to break the mould and push the boundaries of representation and create a new and fresh kind of portraiture. So this enabled him to mark himself out as offering something different as an ambitious and innovative artist. But crucially, it also helps his sitters mark themselves out as distinctive, elevating their perceived social, intellectual or professional status. And so the very first full length that Reynolds produced in 1752 is a perfect example. And in fact, it's one of it's the first one that he displays, I think, very prominently in his London studio as an advertisement of his artistic vision. And this depicts the celebrated naval commander, Viscount Commodore Augustus Keppel. And he was a member of a leading aristocratic family. And he was someone that Reynolds knew because he was the captain of a ship called the Centurion. And this is a ship on which Reynolds was allowed to travel in order to spend time exploring the continent, studying the great masters of European art. So in his portraits of Keppel, Reynolds shows him dressed in full naval uniform. There's a rocky shoreline and a stormy sea behind him. But instead of having a kind of static pose addressing the viewer in the kind of way that you might expect previous portraits of this kind to work, his stance and his bodily gestures are much more dynamic. It's almost as if he's striding confidently across this landscape. So that's the first key thing to note, that there's this extraordinary sense of dynamism, which would have looked strikingly new to contemporary viewers. And the second thing he does is, and then this taps into the type of thing Louise has been talking about with Reynolds taking references from other forms of art. Here, he uh, makes a direct reference to a well-known classical depiction of a heroic male body. And that's the second century sculpture known as the Apollo Belvedere. Which by the 18th century was quite famous and had been emulated by many sculptors, so it certainly would have been familiar to people of certain status or academic credentials, people who um, were learned and had a taste for classical arts. So by positioning Keppel's body in a way that mimicked this revered statue from antiquity, I think the portrait implied certain characteristics about Keppel as a heroic figure with an elevated sense of taste and virtue, and also Reynolds as an erudite student of the highest forms of art, and The final thing that he does here, I think that's worth mentioning, is that he's said to allude to a a particular episode in Keppel's professional life to even further enhance this sense of drama or underlying narrative. And specifically, this is a moment in the Seven Years' War in which Keppel's ship was wrecked, but um, apparently he saved himself and his crew reputedly through his great skill and heroism. And we're encouraged to imagine Reynolds' painting as a dramatisation of this event's immediate aftermath. So Keppel looks remarkably calm and unruffled considering the circumstances, with his uniform still completely pristine, in total contrast to the crashing waves and the stormy sky and this really hazardous looking landscape that surrounds him. So it's a really astonishing painting, especially considering it's Reynolds' first full-length portrait, and it unambiguously sets out his intention to create an alternative model of modern British portraiture, particularly, as I've said at this time, using male, naval and military subjects.
0: Yes. And while you've been speaking, I think I've found the one you're referring to sort of got a brownish, bluish hue to most of it. Yeah. Um, that's it, and yeah. he's got his he's got his arm, his right arm stretched out and he's almost pointing towards something in the bottom left hand corner in a way. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an interesting pose.
2: Yeah. So that's a pose that I mentioned is, um, you know, derives from the Apollo Belvedere and mm. um there's a 17th century sculpture by Pierre Le Gros, which is thought to be the kind of particular model. That in itself comes after the Apollo Belvedere, and Reynolds is potentially looking to that. So the arm stretched out in that way and pointing is a very deliberate evocation of that kind of male hero prototype.
1: What do
0: you think he's pointing to in this interpretation?
2: I see it almost as if he's, um, you know, he's only looks like he's standing a few meters away from the water, and despite this. Kind of catastrophic thing that's happened. It's almost like he's dusted himself down, and, right back in action again, and kind of pointing out orders to someone, or you know completely unfazed by what's just happened, and just you know straight back into action.
0: Even the perspective with the crashing waves being quite close to his heels. Yeah, it's almost sort of slightly wrong in in terms of perspective because that appears to be a distant image, and yet it's really close to the subject. So, an interesting. Approach to representing the truth of the subject.
2: Yeah, I don't think people have seen anything like that really before. So, mm. it's, And that picture's in the um, National Maritime Museum today, which feels quite appropriate, I think.
0: And whereabouts is the National Maritime Museum if people want to see?
2: So, yeah, so in, in, in Greenwich in, and ah, south. south of London, yeah.
0: Okay, so a, a good one to go to if you're in London and you want to do Kenwood first in North London, you could perhaps. Head south on the uh, DLR and uh, head to Greenwich as well.
2: And then pop up the hill, Greenwich Park, to um, Ranger's House, which is another great English heritage property in that neck of the woods.
0: And does that have Reynolds' work as well?
2: So at Ranger's House, yeah, there are more than one Reynolds there. There's a really striking portrait of Lady Caroline Price gazing quite in an arresting way directly at us with this really bright, vivid red background. And there's a beautiful full-length portrait of Emily Mary Margaretta Coote, who was the Countess of Bellamont, in this exquisite kind of floating dress. Again, in typically for Reynolds in a beautiful landscape setting.
0: Really striking images, both of those ones. So worth seeing face to face, so to speak. Of the male portraits you've been describing there, Peter, which are in the English Heritage Collection, where else can they be seen apart from Kenwood, Rangers, etc?
2: Well, at Audley End, we have a portrait of someone called Admiral Matthew Whitwell. And this was painted in 1755, just three years after the portrait of Augustus Keppel we've just been talking about. So it's still quite early in Reynolds' career. And although it's a more modest three-quarter length picture without quite the same drama and sense of narrative as Keppel that we've been discussing. It does demonstrate how Reynolds adapted that extraordinary full-length naval portrait into a less complex and arguably more marketable format for other naval men. And it's thought that Admiral Whitwell's portrait was commissioned to mark the culmination of his six years captaining the Royal Navy warship HMS Triton. So that gives us a sense of the commemorative nature of some of these kinds of pictures And that portrait ended up being at Audley End in the later 18th century when the house was owned by Admiral Whitwell's brother, Sir John Griffin Griffin. And hanging alongside it is another portrait by Reynolds of John Wallop, the first Earl of Portsmouth. And he was the husband of a lady called Elizabeth, the Countess of Portsmouth, and it's from her that Sir John Griffin Griffin inherited Audley End. So if you had to categorise this, you'd put it in the aristocratic ancestor category, which for country houses is quite an important one to have on your walls to demonstrate your lineage and this portrait is uh, three-quarter length again but the Earl is shown seated and he's wearing a dark green velvet suit with lace cuffs and a white powdered wig and one hand is casually resting on the arm of the chair and his other hand is holding a book on the table in front of him and his thumb is positioned just like it's kind of keeping the place between the pages as if we've interrupted him from reading and it was painted just a few months before the Earl died So it's really an image of a man of very high social and political status towards the end of his life. And he has a, I describe it as a calm and kind of confident and dignified, not arrogant, but kind of very assured demeanor. And I think that somehow feels deliberately softened by all this rich crimson drapery that's completely covering the table in front of him and enveloping space behind him. And I've already mentioned he's got this luxurious velvet suit and very puffy um, wig and there's a sense of all of these textures really strongly comes through. And interestingly, this work is thought to have been painted by Reynolds in combination with a studio assistant. So potentially only the face and possibly the hands were painted by Reynolds. And then a specialist a drapery painter would be drafted in to deal with all these vast swathes of fabric. And that in itself, I think, is really interesting to note and a great example of the kind of studio practice that Reynolds developed as he became more and more successful and there were kind of greater demands on his time.
0: Fascinating. So he had a team of people to help mm. create these works. It wasn't just Sir Joshua Reynolds painting it, it was uh, assistants as well.
2: Yeah, there's, there's a kind of sliding scale, really, of works that are considered to be an autograph, you know, described as by Reynolds. Then you might get some that are Reynolds and Studio or simply Studio of Reynolds. And then it gets a bit murky. Then you've got kind of circle of reynolds a follower of reynolds and some portraits of reynolds painted you know there might be dozens of copies of kind of varying degrees of kind of closeness to, to the artist himself
0: that's amazing but yes it, it just goes to show that um in all kinds of creative output if you're really really busy then you're going to need potentially a team to help you produce the commission um, yeah. so that you can move on to the next one
2: there are a few other noteworthy male portraits that English heritage sites. Um, I won't go through them all, but one that I particularly wanted to mention that I really like is at Downhouse, the home of Charles Darwin. And this one's a portrait of the famous potter and entrepreneur Josiah Wedgwood, who was Charles Darwin's grandfather, which I don't think a lot of people know. It's a really interesting connection. And Wedgwood, of course, was a man of great ingenuity and had incredible commercial success with, you know, Wedgwood pottery. And he was also a prominent slavery abolitionist. And this portrait by Reynolds, I think it's the thing that's striking about it is it seems incredibly modest. There's nothing very grand about it, but it's in works like this that I think we really see Reynolds' genius in capturing and conveying a very powerful sense of a person's character simply through their facial expressions in a very subtle way, really. It's quite hard to put it into words, but you find this time and time again. And you feel that Reynolds is facilitating a very direct and personal connection between the sitter and the viewer, so that's regardless of their status or their reputation.
0: I hope I found the right one. Is this the one where Wedgwood is very much head and shoulders yeah. and almost looking slightly upwards towards the artist as though he's yeah. just caught his attention it's and, kind he, of, and, and it, is it, listening? It,
2: yeah, he's kind of looking slightly upwards and his mouth, he's kind of, he's not smiling, but well, it was kind of like the more you look at it, you can almost like you can detect a tiny hint of a smile. It's. It's one of those ones that you can just kind of look at and become quite absorbed in. And that's what I was trying to hint at, really. It's almost like you're standing there, kind of looking at someone who's looking back at you.
0: Yes, it's almost between expressions. Yeah. So it's almost like Wedgwood is sitting there, leaning slightly forward with one shoulder, with his chin slightly up, mouth slightly open, his eyes alert, almost responding to something that the artist has said. Almost like the artist has held up his brush and said look here <laughs> yeah something I, like that
2: absolutely I think it's one though that looks it, it'd be easy to kind of miss it because it is you know it's not as grand as some of the other portraits but it's when you spend time looking at it you really realize the genius and the subtlety and of you know something actually it's very complex yes but it looks so kind of straightforward really
0: it's a micro expression and, mm. a, and a really short moment captured yeah. in time mm. something that you know one of our modern smartphones or dslr cameras mm. could capture very easily but this has been done painstakingly and i think that's really striking mm. there's a lot of also detail on the forehead and the eyes the eyes have a bit of a sparkle yeah and also the the nose and the bottom lip so your eye is being drawn to those mm. areas.
2: And I think the fact that he was massively well known as this huge commercial success, but as I mentioned, had quite a strong role in the abolition of slavery. I wonder if you know it's anything to do with that, this kind of quite pensive, thoughtful look.
0: Louise, you've been listening to Peter and I Mm -mm. wax lyrical about Mm -mm. Sir Joshua Reynolds' work, but out of the Kenwood collection and the 17 pictures there, how would you characterise the works by Reynolds in the collection at Kenwood?
1: We're very lucky in that the 17 paintings by Reynolds at Kenwood span almost the entirety of his career. So our earliest portrait dates to 1752 and it was actually painted in Paris while reynolds was on his way back from his three-year grand tour of italy and our last portrait our latest portrait by reynolds is probably the last commissioned work he ever began before the loss of his sight in around 1790 so it's a really comprehensive span but the collection is really dominated by portraits of women and also those of children, both of which played a very important part in Reynolds' career. Peters talked about the significance of his male portraiture, particularly in that early part of his career when he's returning from his grand tour. But portraiture of women and children became increasingly important to Reynolds. And his desire for that sort of elevated form of portraiture, I think, finds its most flamboyant personification in his full-length portraits of society beauties that he exhibited at the Royal Academy in the 1770s and early 1780s. And we have three extraordinary examples at Kenwood, Mrs. Tolemash as Miranda, Lady Louisa Manners, and Mrs. Musters as Hebe. These paintings sort of really capture and epitomise the ambitious role-playing portraiture of Reynolds in his prime. His sitters take on the roles of, respectively, a Shakespearean heroine, a character from John Milton's epic poem Il Pensarosa, so Lady Louisa Manners becomes a figure of melancholy, and mrs musters becomes a greek goddess hebe the greek goddess of youth and cupbearer to zeus and she's depicted standing high on the summit of mount olympus feeding ambrosia to zeus's eagles wearing sort of grecian drapery and sort of scantily clad feet with her grecian sandals and the wind high upon the mountaintop is whipping her hair billowing out her clothing. It's a very sensuous image of a very famous society beauty elevated to the status of a goddess. So I think that's sort of really its very characteristic of the type of paintings by Reynolds that Lord Ivor is particularly interested in and that we have today at Kenwood. We also have lots of portraits of children These became increasingly important to Reynolds' artistic practice in the 1770s. He became really celebrated for his ability to capture the kind of spontaneity and innocence of children. He famously had a rapport with his younger sitters. He would play with them and tell them fairy stories to keep them entertained while he painted and as a result he was able to sort of capture their mannerisms and the quirks of their behavior in a way that is very natural. That skill I think is really epitomized in one of my favorite child portraits at Kenwood. It's a painting of three-year-old master Philip York Um, He's painted in a little white dress, so he's not been breached yet, which means he hasn't been put into trousers, which... All children wore little dresses in the 18th century until they were about seven when little boys would get their first pair of trousers. But Master Philip is only three, so he's wearing his little white dress and he's got a fantastic shock of auburn curls that haven't been cut yet. And it's this wonderful sort of mass of auburn hair that he has. And he's standing in a landscape with his Springer Spaniel at his feet. And one arm is outstretched and a robin has landed on this sort of chubby babyish little arm and he's kind of frozen in amazement staring at this robin hmm. His little and they're all feet looking at each other aren't they they are they're all sort of the robins looking at him and the dogs looking at the robin and he's looking at the robin and this little hand sort of extended in delight and amazement and it's sort of this real sense of a moment in time frozen while they all stare at this robin just before it flies away. It's such a charming portrait. And I think it really captures the sort of natural simplicity of children. And that's what Reynolds was so famous for.
0: And yet at the other end of the temporal scale, we've got Reynolds working with adults to create real fantastical images, yes, which absolutely. are deriving from myth or history or something like that. So I think that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. So you've got the contrast there between the childlike innocence of discovering a bit of wildlife on your arm versus the adult experience of really creative images which are based in literature and history and, and all these sorts of things. So interesting. There's a lot to what Joshua Reynolds is doing in his creations. But talking about how people would have seen Reynolds's work in his time back in the 1700s. How would somebody who's an art lover go and see a Reynolds painting in person?
2: Well, if you were very well connected, or you moved in aristocratic circles, you might have been able to see paintings by Reynolds if you were visiting your friends, if they lived in country houses, or perhaps in their London residences if they've you know, commissioned paintings from Joshua Reynolds. So visiting the home of a wealthy patron was one way to see his work. But if you weren't of such high social status, you could still see Reynolds' paintings by going to an exhibition. And that might sound quite obvious and a familiar thing for people to do today. But the experience of going to an art exhibition was actually a very new phenomenon in Reynolds' time. And he was central to making that change happen. So although there were various forms of public exhibition in the years leading up to the establishment of the Royal Academy in 1768 that was the pivotal moment, really. And Reynolds, um, as Louise has already said, was, of course, the president of the Royal Academy from its foundation until his death in 1792. So he's in a really important position there, making this change happen and making art more accessible to people. So anyone really could admire the latest creations by Reynolds and other leading artists at the Academy's annual summer exhibition. It might be, you know, it's an exhibition that's continuously been on every year since the Academy was founded. So People listening might be familiar with going to that exhibition, but they had to pay a shilling for entry. So when the first summer exhibition opened in 1769, the press noted that despite it being supported by what it called royal munificence, it couldn't be free to enter and an admission charge was necessary. And this was argued apparently because the academicians were not able to suggest any other means than that of receiving money to prevent the room being filled with improper persons. And as the years went by, the anticipation of these Royal Academy summer shows and the great spectacle that went with them grew and grew and there became intense rivalry between different artists who hoped their works would be given the best hanging positions and paintings on display were hotly debated in the press, in the taverns and coffee houses and on the streets. And it's really after the Academy moved to Somerset House in 1780 that things really took off and Reynolds particularly starts using the summer exhibition very deliberately to cultivate and promote a sense of celebrity for his sitters among the visiting public and this famously includes members of the royal family as well perhaps most notably George Prince of Wales and some of the most prominent military heroes of the day but the exhibition became not just a place to see but a place to be seen such was its intense fashionable appeal and there are various Really lovely satirical images from the period showing these thronging crowds in the Academy's great room. And you see pictures by Reynolds and all the great artists on the wall behind them surrounded by these paintings, but some of them also quite distracted by the spectacle of each other.
0: He's a real creator then, isn't he? Because he's creating a sense of drama within reality and sort of almost orchestrating people. Creating a scenario where he's sort of painting a picture with all these celebrities rubbing shoulders, looking at uh, portraits of themselves. And he's, he's like a marketer rolled into one as well.
2: Yeah, and the and the, <laughs> you know, the way that these shows were hung was really important too, because people could make connections between, you know, a picture by Reynolds of a certain figure and say one of Gainsborough or someone else and all these potential kind of implied connections, narratives, but you know, looking across a wall of all these different... Figures and subjects all kind of jostling for attention. It was it's a really amazing, you know, spectacle they created.
0: It really is, yes. If someone couldn't have bought a Reynolds at the time or see one, could they at least buy a print?
2: Absolutely, they they could, yeah. And the print trade was vital for Reynolds as a way of forging his reputation and advertising his talents as a painter and ensuring that the widest possible audience had access to his images. And there's no doubt that prints allowed him particularly early on, to promote himself and advance his career. And it was also crucial to some of his patrons who really wanted their image to be circulated, particularly these aspiring celebrities and actors we've heard about. And Reynolds often collaborated with a specific engraver over a number of years. So the mezzotint engraver James McArdle, for example, was Reynolds' printmaker of choice throughout the 1750s. And McArdle operated a studio and a print shop called The Golden Head, on Henrietta Street, overlooking Covent Garden, so right at the heart of the city's art world at the time. And if you walk past McArdle's shop window, the panes of glass acted sometimes almost like frames for the prints, so kind of a gallery for the street. And in the early days, there were quite a lot of adverts in London newspapers promoting these prints for sale, saying that they were taken from original paintings by Mr Reynolds and on sale typically for around five shillings, which is equivalent to about £40 today. And in 1750, that was about two days' wages for a skilled tradesman. So they these weren't cheap products. But in later years, the advertising of prints after Reynolds' paintings became a bit more discreet and often relied simply on the circulation of the prints alone to generate interest among collectors and connoisseurs. And I think Reynolds felt that an overly commercial approach could be seen as a bit vulgar as he sought to build this client base among the aristocratic elite and potentially there's a risk they might find overly zealous advertising a bit distasteful or uncouth.
0: What about today, though? Can people see the Reynolds prints at English Heritage properties today?
2: Yeah, the answer is yes, but it's important to say from the outset that we have far more prints after paintings by Reynolds than those which hang on the walls of our properties. The majority, I think, are probably kept in our libraries or archive stores, and So they're not necessarily always seen by everyone who walks through the house. And this is partly for conservation reasons, but also simply because many of these prints were never uh, displayed on the walls. So in the context of country house collections, prints were often incorporated into library collections and kept in large folios that could be perused and leafed through. So at Audley End, for example, we have thousands of prints and they're all stored in folios and arranged by subjects. For example, there's one on landscapes, sporting subjects, portraits of royalties, celebrities, and so on. And it's in the folios dedicated to portrait subjects, of course, that we find examples after Reynolds. And these include you know, the usual categories we've spoken about, politicians, celebrities, female beauties, these kinds of prints that were circulated in fairly large numbers and would probably have been bought in London print shops. But then we also have portraits of family members, which might have been privately commissioned or gifted from the sitter to their relatives and not necessarily published for sale. And There's a good example of this in the collection at Audley End. It's a portrait of George Grenville, who was at one time the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And this is an engraved image after a portrait by Reynolds. And Grenville's daughter, Catherine, had married Richard Neville, the second Baron Braybrook, who lived at Audley End in the early 19th century. And interestingly, on this print, there's an inscription in ink, handwritten inscription, which is in Lord Braybrook's own handwriting, which reads, Lord Braybrook, private plate, So it's a great example of a special commission that couldn't be bought in a shop. But in other settings, just to return to your original question, in other settings, typically smaller, more domestic ones, you can still see prints by Reynolds on display. And it would have been quite common to frame prints and have them on the wall as decoration. So a fine uh, mezzo tint engraving after a Reynolds portrait was absolutely seen as a high quality luxury product with a limited number available. And... I think it's important to reiterate when we talk about a print in an 18th century context, this can mean many different kinds of things from quite a cruise line engraving that you could buy really cheaply and pick up from a street vendor for a few pence. You know, they tended to be topical subjects are quite ephemeral, not the kind of thing that people kept for a long time. And at the complete opposite end of the scale, things like these mezzotints we're talking about. This was a print method that was perfectly suited for reproducing portraiture. It's a tonal method. So it gives you a sense of that kind of painterly quality of a subject. And for some people, these kinds of prints were absolutely used to decorate their walls. So at Walmer Castle, for example, there are a couple of frame prints after Reynolds' paintings on display. There's one of Lord Mansfield in the drawing room and one of Mrs. Siddons as the tragic muse in the Duke of Wellington's bedroom. And the Mrs. Siddons one became a very famous image, even in Reynolds' own lifetime. And we know that it hung in the bedroom at Warmer in the Duke of Wellington's time. And it was certainly there when he died in 1852, which is how that room's presented. Um, There are also a series of prints after Reynolds' portraits of important naval figures at Warmer. And that's extremely fitting for the site, which has historically been the official residence of the Lord Warden of the Sink Ports. And that's a role concerned with five major seaports on the southeast coast. And these probably, we think, would have been hung as a group, perhaps in a corridor originally, but they're not on display today simply because of the changing use of rooms over time.
0: So lots of Reynolds connections at English Heritage sites within London and also out towards uh, Kent, as you've just described, at Warmer Castle. Reynolds also has a blue plaque in London, which depicts where he lived. Um, So, where is this, Peter, and um, and what's the significance of this particular building?
2: It's actually on a relatively modern building, but crucially, it's on the site of what was number forty-seven Leicester Square, and that's where Reynolds lived for much of his life. And a plaque was originally put up in eighteen sixty-nine before that building was demolished, and then a new plaque was later put on the on the the new building. And Reynolds first moved to London. As an apprentice at the age of 17 but then traveled around a bit and it was really in the summer of 1760 when he was 36 that he established himself in the capital and moved to number 47 leicester square which was a very grand late 17th century house and this is in the heart of the london art world at the time and he set about modernizing this building and created an extension which accommodated a series of studios and a picture gallery it was a really busy place and he employed different pupils and assistants there And he was looked after by a housekeeper. And this was first fulfilled by his sister, Fanny, and then from the late 1770s by his niece, Mary. And interestingly, both of these women were talented artists, apparently. So he was surrounded by a group of people who offered both personal and professional support. And number 47, Leicester Square, was the backdrop to some really important moments in his life. So it was while he was living there that he was appointed the first president of the Royal Academy in 1768, then was knighted in 1769, became the principal painter to George III in 1784. And it's the property in which he died. So it's a really very important location, which Reynolds called home for over 30 years of his life.
0: That's amazing. And also, of course, uh, you mentioned it was a, an art hub. It's kind of still an art hub today because Leicester Square, the centre of London there really, near to Piccadilly Circus, it's still a place where moving pictures have their premieres. You have all the film premieres there in Leicester Square.
2: Yeah, in a very different way. It's um, lively and buzzing and with visual arts of different types. Clearly, it would have been very different in the 18th century. But there's some kind of synergy, I guess, with the kind of atmosphere today. But yeah, of course, London was a much smaller place. and But the surrounding areas in the 18th century, Covent Garden and St. Martin's Lane. St. Martin's Lane's where one of the first artist's academy was. So yeah, it's a really important part of London for art in the 18th century.
0: Yes, and those two locations also just within a very short yeah. walk. And of course, round the corner from Leicester Square is the National Portrait Gallery. So Yeah, very fittingly. Enough. It's still uh, an art, art central. Louise and I discussed Reynolds' self-portraiture at Kenwood at the start of the podcast. But um, are there any other Reynolds self-portraits that people might like to look up or go and see in person, Louise?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Self-portraiture was lifelong preoccupation for Reynolds. He was a prolific self-portrait painter. He made as many as 30 in his lifetime. He, as I mentioned, really admired and was inspired by Rembrandt, who is perhaps the most prolific self-portrait painter in art history. And like Rembrandt, Reynolds used self-portraiture as a way to advertise his talents and to experiment with poses and practice different facial expressions self-portraiture was also whether he could control his public image and promote his status as an artist and a cultural figure that said one of my favorite self-portraits by reynolds and we're lucky we have an example in the collection at kenwood it's one of his last self-portraits it was painted When he was about 65 so it's his penultimate self-portrait and it's a much more personal private image than some of the earlier public works that he produced the original version of it is in the royal collection but reynolds and his studio produced several replicas that he then gave as gifts to friends and particularly important patrons so the version that we have at kenwood was painted for Reynolds' friend and first biographer, Edmund Malone. And he writes really beautifully about receiving the portrait and about how it was incredibly like Reynolds and it showed him exactly as he appeared in his later years in domestic life. So kind of when he was at home to guests. It's quite a small, relatively humble self-portrait. It just shows Reynolds sort of head and shoulders it's quite strikingly lit. He's positioned to one side, to a sort of angle, but he's looking directly out at the viewer. It's got quite a dark background and he's wearing quite dark clothing, but then the the light is quite bright and intense on his face. And really strikingly, he's wearing spectacles, which he had done since at least 1783, but he'd never painted himself with spectacles before. It was quite unusual to see any portrait of somebody in glasses. Two pairs of Reynolds spectacles survive and they show us that he was short-sighted. So it's unlikely he would have actually needed them to paint, certainly not to paint a self-portrait, which of course he would have done from a mirror at quite close quarters. So the inclusion of the glasses in the self-portrait seems to have been quite a deliberate choice Might suggest that he was trying to convey a kind of scholarly intellectualism. I think, much as today, glasses in the 18th century were sort of accepted as a way to suggest intellectualism. They were very expensive in the 18th century. So generally speaking, the people who wore them the most were the people who had to do the most reading or the most sort of scholarly work. They would do writing. And so the glasses became associated with intellectualism in the 18th century. So perhaps Reynolds is including the glasses in his self-portrait to convey the sense that he is a, a scholarly person. He certainly saw himself in that light he saw himself not just as an artist but as a an art theorist and a writer on art but I also I think particularly referring back to what Edmund Malone had said that the portrait shows Reynolds as he was in domestic life i quite like the idea that perhaps he's including the glasses in his self-portrait because that's how his friends would have known him and how he actually appeared in his home life. So a very personal image and and I think one of his most interesting and most enlightening self-portraits.
0: Very interesting. Obviously doing art on a podcast can be quite a challenge and I hope people have been able to follow what we're doing and look at some of the pieces if they can. But um, what materials did Reynolds use to achieve his vivid portraits?
1: Reynolds worked in oil paint which consists of organic pigments that are ground up and mixed with an oil binder, usually linseed oil. But Reynolds was very experimental as an artist, not just in terms of his sources of inspiration or his approach to his art, but also in relation to materials he was using. And he was notorious for adding all sorts of weird and wonderful things to his paint mixtures, including things like waxes, resins, varnish, and even bitumen, which he referred to as asphalt, or we might call today tarmac.
0: Wow, amazing. So lots of texture and depth of colour, I suppose. Yes. Um, have the materials held up well over time?
1: Many of Reynolds' paintings are still in good condition, and those that are really demonstrate his sort of masterful work as an artist. But unfortunately, some of his more experimental works haven't fared so well. So, among the most famous or infamous problems with Reynolds' paintings was his use of carmine red pigments to create flesh tones. Carmine red is made from cochineal beetles, and although they are initially very strongly coloured, they are also very light sensitive, and so this pigment fades rapidly, and and a lot of these red colours were fading even in Reynolds' own lifetimes, which with the flesh tones leaves many of his sitters with a very unnaturally pale appearance. The bitumen was also an issue, as are the waxes and resins that he mixed into his paints and varnishes. These substances coupled with his technique of layering lots and lots of sometimes incompatible materials caused problems during drying. And this has meant that some of his paintings have lots of deep cracks in areas that look almost like alligator skin, which can be very unsightly. There is evidence that Reynolds tried to restore some of his paintings himself in his own lifetime. But interestingly, he never stopped experimenting. So Today, conservation of his painting is notoriously difficult, and some, including several paintings at Kenwood, are really sort of shadows of their former glory.
0: That's a shame. If Reynolds' experiments with materials and techniques could have such disastrous results, even in his own lifetime, why do you think he took these approaches, Louise?
1: So before he went on his grand tour, his technique was much less experimental. He was following the rules that he had been taught under Thomas Hudson. But when he came back from his grand tour of Europe, he began experimenting in a big way. And it seems likely that he was trying to imitate some of the things he had seen and so admired in the work of 16th and 17th century old master painters. So particularly the sort of glowing colours and this rich impasto paint Impasto is very thick, raised paint that stands proud of the surface of the canvas. Reynolds considered the old masters the highest form of art, and so he was trying to imitate what he saw in their works. But of course, a lot of what he saw and admired so much was the result of age. These paintings were already. You know, two, three, four hundred years old. And so he starts adding various things to his paint mixtures in an effort to emulate the effects of aging oil paint, which becomes increasingly translucent over time. But sadly, that often had disastrous results.
0: We've covered a few times already that uh, Reynolds was a writer and a lecturer and a real thinker, a thought leader, I suppose you would say, in today's uh, modern business parlance. Can you tell us a bit more about what Reynolds contributed to the art world of his time, Peter?
2: One of the key things, I think, that marked Reynolds out from other artists of the period, as you've just suggested, was his use of written and spoken word to set out his thoughts and theories about art and really to shape public opinion about British art in the 18th century. And the major contribution he made in this area is between 1769 and 1790, he delivered a series of 15 lectures in the Royal Academy schools, which were subsequently published as his Discourses on Art. And we've already spoken quite a lot about his borrowings from other artists. And he argued vociferously that painters should look to classical and Renaissance art as their model and aspired to idealise nature rather than simply copying it as they saw it. So in his 1770 discourse, he argues that a mere copier of nature can never produce anything great, can never raise and enlarge the conceptions or warm the heart of the spectator. And he also used his lectures to confirm his status as the leader of a new British school of arts. And this was often combined with a very strong patriotic rhetoric. And in his 1780 address, he proclaimed it will be no small addition to the glory which this nation has already acquired from having given birth to eminent men in every part of science, if it should be able to produce, in consequence of this institution, so the Royal Academy, a school of English artists. But I think my favourite quote, which is from Reynolds' 1771 address, is when he says, it must be remembered that painting is not merely a gratification of the sight. So I think what he's implying is that however technically accomplished a painter might be, a truly great artist has to be able to affect more than just the sense of sight, engaging a variety of other emotions. And this quality is something that Reynolds goes on to describe as grandeur and sublimity. Again, something that's very difficult to kind of describe in words, but you know, he's saying it's not just about looking. So the fact that Reynolds left us this really rich body of writing has been incredibly helpful for art historians in trying to understand his work and what he was trying to do in a much more intimate way, I think. And also, to some extent, it's allowed him to establish his own legacy in a way that I don't think would have been possible if he was just relying on paintings alone.
0: Yes, and I think what you're describing there is very striking, isn't it? It's almost like saying photorealism is great, Mm. but you need to go a bit more deeply than that and and to provide something that has multiple angles of interest for the the human eye to look at and multi-dimensional layers.
2: Yeah, and, and obviously this has a massive impact on those artists working around him at the time, but you mustn't forget that slightly later on the pre-Raphaelites come along and they, they kind of reject, <laughs> reject that really and go back to observing in minute detail the nature around them.
0: Mm, well, fashions come and go, don't <laughs> yeah. they? And lastly, of course, you know, we've mentioned a number of sites that uh, people can visit, but how can people find out a bit more about Sir Joshua Reynolds as part of the 300th anniversary of his birth, Louise?
1: So on site at Kenwood, we're going to be celebrating Reynolds' 300th birthday with a special display, exploring his life and work and his long connection to Kenwood. So our display, Spotlight on Reynolds, Lord Ivor's favourite artist at 300, opens today and it features 17 of his paintings from the collection at Kenwood. So a chance to see all of the works that I've been talking about today For listeners who can't make it to Kenwood before the display closes on the 19th of November, we have some brand new online content on the Kenwood pages of the English Heritage website. And you can find out more about some conservation work our paintings conservators have been carrying out on three of our Reynolds in a short film which is available on the English Heritage YouTube channel. Um.
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're on a mission to unmask the real Robin Hood.
2: The standard form is a ballad. We can presume that the Robin Hood stories were sung, but we also have instances of Robin Hood plays from the 15th century. And from
0: the early 1500s, Robin Hood stories start to get printed. And then this starts a long history of Robin Hood in print. Thanks for listening. See you next time.